Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us for the second session of our Medicare Secondary Payer uh, New York webinar. Uh, this is Greg Lois, and today I am joined by my partner, Christian Cisson. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Uh, you'll note that I've had you on my webinar series dozens of times over the years, maybe maybe 20 times. Wow. Uh, How many times I, have I been asked to be on your podcast series? Every month. Mm, you this ask, is a live ask every month. Let's I have denied you every sure month. Tell, oh! <laughs> ouch, ouch. All right, well, the reason I'm bringing that up is uh, today we're going to be talking about Medicare secondary payer issues in New York workers' comp cases, and this is really intended uh, for our audience to be an introduction to the topic, answer some basic questions, and then take questions live from the audience. That's really our goals for today, but you've already actually done a 201 level on this uh, recently. That's right. We just posted it uh, this past Friday, um, and Declan Gorley, our partner, talked about uh, some current events, uh, some interesting stories about air ambulances and helicopters uh, in Wyoming. Uh, so you, know, you don't get to talk about Wyoming very much in here. Um, plus, we also talked about uh, high, high MSA projections and what we do uh, to uh, reduce them and work with everybody involved so that we can settle at a reasonable number. Okay, and if you're just joining us and I see people are still popping in, uh, we're just talking about Christian's uh, podcast, which is called Third Fridays, and it is released incidentally on? The third Friday of every month. All right. Uh, okay, so we are live. Today we are talking about Medicare secondary payer issues. Please type your questions to us. It makes it a lot more fun. Um, <clears throat> Medicare secondary payer uh, concerns, issues crop up in a lot of workers' compensation cases in New York, primarily when we go to resolve those matters pursuant to Section 32, but there's one other way they can come up in uh, workers' comp claims. Uh, this year, uh, we do this topic once a year, every January, and since last year, really the new stuff has been that uh, Medicare has now issued uh, the complete, they have completed the rollout, I should say, of the new Medicare cards, right. which now do not include a Social Security number on them. So. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing we're seeing is medicinal marijuana in New York workers' compensation claims. Yeah, you know, uh, at, for anybody who was at the self-insured conference annual meeting last week, they talked about uh, a new subject number uh, coming out to give us guidance on how these claims are going to be processed by the board. Uh, you know, we did talk about how M&T reimbursements, uh, expenses by the claimant, uh, have been found in their favor mm -hmm. uh, despite medical marijuana not being authorized by the guidelines. So it's it's currently in a, a little bit of a, an openness uh, regarding litigation status. Right. So right now, carriers uh, can't be asked or forced or required to pay for medicinal marijuana, but they can be required to reimburse the claimant who obtains medicinal marijuana on their own. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. A weird little system. It's a weird system. Now, the other thing is, uh, I've had a lot of questions about how this is going to affect set-asides. I've had uh, uh, clients call me up and say, well, here, this is great news, Craig. We're going to get this person. Uh, we're going to move them from narcotics or opiates, and we're going to move them onto medicinal marijuana, which is going to be so much better for them, long-term health. Isn't this great? And shouldn't this lower my set-aside, Craig? So it could be good or bad, right? I mean, it's certainly uh, cheaper than your high-level opioids and narcotics. Uh, and the problem with those narcotics is that it's extrapolated for the rest of the claimant's life. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they take a life expectancy and just assume that the same dosage is never going to be weaned or decreased. Or reduced, right. right? Yeah. Uh, and 
medicinal marijuana certainly has its cost benefit, right? It's, it's cheaper than that alternative. However, uh, you have some kind of an inclination that the federal government in its association with Medicare as a federal entity, or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, uh, might not be putting forth those costs in an MSA. Oh, absolutely not. So they can't pay for it, right? It's not a Medicare covered cost because it's Schedule One drug. So right. absolutely, it cannot go into a set-aside. In other words, the set-aside allocation can't say, hey, we're not uh, going to set aside all this money for the opiates and narcotics because, comma, we're going to get this dude uh, into right. medicinal marijuana. Okay, so right. unfortunately, it's not going to impact these until uh, marijuana comes off as a Schedule One substance. Right. That also doesn't negate the possibility that you still have an MSA with the opioids in there, right? Mm -hmm. You still mm -hmm. need to mm -hmm. litigate weaning. You might need to work with the other side to get a claimant on generic medication. Just because you introduce a new medication doesn't mean it automatically replaces uh, the old one. Yep. All right. So. Uh, please bring your questions today. We're going to now uh, talk about the topic in a more general sense and uh, just try to give a quick overview of how the system works, give some tips and tricks, uh, and then uh, we'd like to answer as many questions as we can. So please feel free to ask us your questions, type them in, and we'll get to them at the end. All right, uh, the very first and most important thing is let's think about uh, so, so set-asides and allocations and secondary payer stuff. This is all just pure compliance work. And I like right. to remind people why we care about it. Well, we care about it because we could be liable for double damages uh, should be found not to take Medicare's future interest into account. Right. Uh, that's the fear. Uh, the other lesser fear is that the claimant's uh, Medicare benefit is going to be suspended by Medicare if they find that they're, the claimant is making Medicare pay for things that really should have properly been paid for by the comp carrier. Right. So past versus future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Definitions. And, and let's talk about really the way to approach this topic. When we talk about this with our adversaries, they get confused. Oh, of course. Uh, you know, they, they really don't deal with conditional payments, right? Uh, they kind of leave it to us and, and carriers to figure out what needs to be done so that the case can get settled and they get their fee. Yeah, and they often confuse conditional payments with the set-aside allocation. So right. we'll go to them and we'll say, hey, your guy's Medicare entitled. We need to worry about Medicare's future interest. And they'll go, hey, hey dude, I'm cool. I don't have any conditional payments or I don't have a lien in this case, right? Right, they wouldn't give it to them. Which is wrong, okay? Uh, so let's talk about that in, in the first spec, right? Uh, because Medicare is going to come forward and say, you know, anything that I paid for in the past that I shouldn't have had to pay for, I did that conditionally, and now you've got to pay me my money back. And uh, that is because comp is always primary to Medicare. And in the olden days, uh, we would always get these little... Letters. They used paper in the old they days. They used paper in the old days. Christian, I know. <laughs> look, I'm an old man, and, and I remember when we got these paper ledgers 20 years ago, uh, and for a long time this persisted. Now the claimants go to that Medicare portal, and they can see the status of any payments that Medicare is essentially saying, I shouldn't have made this payment. You should have made this payment. I only made it conditionally. Pay me back. Right. Medicare is not going to leave money on the table. Uh, if they uh, find out that a case is being settled, then you're certainly going to uh, get a conditional payment uh, letter. It might even actually go after the settlement. So it's actually a good idea to be proactive and find out whether conditional payments need to be uh, remitted back to Medicare before you settle a claim. Yep. Uh, our clients do a great job in general of using the matching systems. They'll often right. at the time they refer a matter to us say, hey, this person's Medicare entitled. You know, let's be cautious about this. 
and then we'll go to our adversary during the case and say, hey, if they've been using their Medicare card when they really shouldn't have been, and of course they always say, oh no, oh no, <laughs> and then later on the conditional payments come out. Um, the conditional payment um, allegations, really, made by Medicare can be refuted. I mean, we can come back and say, look, there's treatments on there for chronic halitosis and pneumonia and something that's completely right. unrelated to my claim. So right. I don't want to admit. necessarily take them as gospel. There right. could be indications that the treatment is for uh, conditions outside of our claim. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's the past. That's the past, and that's something to take care of. Uh, let's look at the future. So Medicare shouldn't be paying for things related to our workers' comp claim. And when we take care of that or put money aside to handle that, we call that a set-aside allocation. Right. I just like to say, right off the bat, it's not the only way we can um, take care of Medicare's future interests. I've had very aggressive clients do things like go out and purchase limited health insurance policies to cover right. this condition for right. the future. So, so that we could close the case on a Section 32. There's a stream of money out there to pay for the medical treatment. Uh, does it work to be seen because enforcement of this is... Sure. It's anytime, anytime uh, a judge is reviewing a settlement and sees that kind of next level uh, work done to consider Medicare's interest, it's always going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride, but it's not saying anything about the efficacy of those types right. of We have to educate uh, the judge often in that circumstance. All right. So let's talk about when we have to be on the lookout, okay? And, you know, the most important one, obviously, is the claimants are already entitled. They're on Medicare. Right. Okay. They have the lovely Medicare card. The other one is... Uh, they're not on Medicare. They're not entitled, but the settlement is over $250,000, and the claimant can be reasonably expected to be Medicare entitled soon. So what does that mean? First, uh, we always ask our adversaries if we're unsure if the person's on Medicare. We say, hey, does your guy have a Medicare card? Right. Uh, people might not even recognize it's the Medicare card anymore because it doesn't have a Social Security number on it, but I'm hoping it does because it says Medicare Health Insurance really big on the card. They're national, so hopefully they would know by now. But uh, also their claimants lie. Sure. Uh, claimants have language barriers or confused or they lost their card. They don't even know they're presenting it. Or, of course, every claimant thinks they're smarter than us. So, you know, they think, oh, I'm getting my treatment on this for this situation over here on this card. And over here, I call it workers' comp, you know, and they play the game. Um, so for all those reasons, you know, we ask them if they have a card, but it's not that simple. We use the matching system. Sure. And we have to make sure that, uh, like you said, there's a difference between a current beneficiary and being reasonably expected to be eligible. Right. right? right. So what, what is Medicare eligible uh, that's someone that's obvious, you know, there's someone who's entitled to it. They've been they've been on SSDI for two or more years. They have end-stage renal disease. They're 65 year old. What's a reasonable expectation? That's a little bit trickier. Uh, they've applied for Social Security disability but been denied. Um, they've applied and are appealing or considering an appeal. They are currently appealing a denial that's pending, so they haven't been said no yet. Um, is they are 62 and a half years old, which means they're close to being 65 years old. Right. Um, and they have end-stage renal disease. Right. So it's really a barrier uh, for settlement because in those types of situations, you will need the MSA to be approved by CMS for compliance reasons, and that can prolong uh, the process to close out a file. So uh, I would say first thing, figure out if if it's a current beneficiary or just eligible, then worry about the thresholds, right? $25,000 for a current beneficiary and $250,000 for someone who would be reasonably expected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. And I think you just said uh, you have to get Medicare's review, but I don't know many of our clients are like, I definitely want the <clears throat> Medicare consent letter. Right. Right. Um, the truth is, 
or the, the in practice, it's actually not required ever to have them ever review any settlement. You could just kind of sure. go in there and risk it. I mean, we're talking about going up to the uh, the machine, just spinning and just taking your, your luck at the draw. Most of our clients really want that that Medicare right. set-aside approval in advance of any kind of settlement. Right. I mean, I think they wrap themselves up in it like a blanket and it makes them feel comfortable and they go to bed at night. Yeah. I get it. It's yeah. pure compliance work. All right. Medicare will respond uh, to those requests for them to approve or disapprove the set-aside. Sure. And we've it seen has, everything. It has a vested interest in doing so, right? Mm -hmm. If it uh, is going to have a case where you know, review is to, that, to their interests necessary, then they want to make sure that the right cost projection is in place so that they don't get on the hook right. after the set-aside has been, um, you know, after the, the, the funds and set-aside have gone away. Right. And I've seen everything. I've seen us propose a set-aside and Medicare come back and say, that's way too much money. I've had us propose a set-aside Medicare say, that's not enough money. Right. I've had us propose set-asides that include structured settlements where we're paying money sure, out over sure. years or they're holding money aside or we're purchasing annuities and Medicare dispute one aspect of that. You know, we like we like the fact they're putting money aside in an annuity, but we want it done in a certain way. So we've seen them really be put their hands into these things when they write the consent. Yeah, they definitely plan. put some time on it. And to the ones where they reduce it, I mean, look, we'll just throw a party. Right? I mean, yeah. uh, what a great great little moment for the claim where you have it set up to settle on X and you find out that you don't have to do that. It's a right. nice little moment for the case. You know, and just circling back to something we said earlier, our most of our clients really want Medicare to give consent to a set-aside agreement before we go into that Section 32 lump sum right. dismissal proceeding. Right. Um, but in cases where we have it, right, where our clients said, you know what, I don't, I don't want to bother with that. I don't want to spend the time with it. We think the set-aside is good. It's good enough. Let's just go with it. Then we've gone into settlement proceedings where the judge will say, "Hey, where's your set? Where's your Medicare right. Center for Medicare Services consent letter? I don't see it in here. I'm not approving the settlement." Right. And then had to explain to the judge, like, "Nope, it's not required." And we have to take out uh, the uh, manual and go to page eight and show where it says in there. Uh, so, you know, without that consent letter, it is sometimes more difficult to put that section thirty. Right. I mean, it's you know, it's, it's like a cost discretion that mm -hmm. clients have. Right. I mean, they. If you, you know that you with that CMS letter, you can get it rubber stamped and closed. Uh, you might have to do a little work for it to close if you don't want to get the MSA approved by CMS, uh, but that's certainly just a, a discretionary uh, decision for, from their end. Okay, great. All right. Um, it's important to note that Medicare will respond. Um, now their times to respond have been a lot quicker than they used to be in the past, and certainly we're doing this through the online portal. Um, all right, let's go and see if we have questions. And I'm hoping we have a lot of questions. This morning's session, we had some good questions, I thought. Great questions. Uh, so let's see what we have here today. Okay. Okay, Kim says, guys, uh, CMS is a voluntary submission. Appreciate you presenting that as a balance. Yes, it is a voluntary. Not a lot of people know that. Uh, William asked the next question, which is, what is the average turnaround time for a Medicare set-aside allocation? So I think let's unpack that into two different things. So first is uh, most of our clients are using vendors right. to get allocations right. calculated and looked at. And that vendor is doing a lot of work. Um, they are going to go through all of the medical in the case. Uh, they are going to take uh, a review of particularly the treating physician's medicals for the last six months. Of course, right. <laughs> and what medications the claimant's on. 
Sure. And then they're going to build Any out surgeries that are authorized. By surgery, yeah, future surgeries right. in particular. I mean, that's a great point. Um, uh, any surgery that's to be discussed. Uh, and then they're going to use the medical treatment guidelines and then just general medical practices and basically say, here's how I extrapolate this into the future. Right. It's, you know, it's, it, depending on your vendor, uh, it shouldn't take too long based on the amount of medical that's in the case. That's the driving force of the time between when you request from the vendor give me a cost projection to when they actually come back. I mean, depending on the relative depth of the question, right, do I need a structured annuity? Uh, do I need uh, an account uh, for the claim to be set up? Uh, those types of things can increase or decrease your wait time. So let's talk about that because most Medicare set-aside allocations are self-administering. Sure, sure. Just that means the claimant gets whatever money is being set aside right. for their future medical care. What right. do you think they do with that money? Well, I think, you know, the car uh, that they've been dreaming about when they filed this frivolous claim in the first place <laughs> uh, is finally coming into it's fruition. Coming in. The RV, uh, the right, boat. You know, the color that they wanted. Uh, it's it's really it's really coming to the forefront, right? Yeah. So self-administering MSAs are certainly, certainly liked by the other side, and they definitely close the case faster. Right. All right, so the answer uh, then, William, unfortunately, and we're going we're gonna to put some lawyer Weasley words around this is, it can really depend on, in terms of getting the initial allocation back uh, from the vendor, can take anywhere from just a couple days, like we've seen vendors turn them around really quickly, to a couple weeks, uh, not months, but weeks, for them to really do the thorough review they need to do. Right, and, and just in case he was also talking about uh, the turnaround timeline from vendor to CMS, I would probably peg that around two to three months, right? You submit the, the MSA to a CMS, they should come back with an approval within that time frame. Okay. Uh, I would also say that it's a dialogue too, so when we get um, set-asides that we're not happy with, I mean, that's where we're, you know, calling up the vendor and coaching them through different places where maybe we could save some money on the set-asides. Uh, for a long time, it was generics versus non-generics. Uh, now it's sometimes when it comes back with, hey, a specific modality is really beefing up the set-aside or all the allocation is for you know future this or that, calling up the treating physician through our adversary counsel and having them maybe remove the right. necessity and, for that know, treatment. Working with the adversary is actually a situation here where you know, we can be both be on the same page for mm -hmm. once, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they want to settle a claim uh, if it's to the point where we're talking about an MSA. Right. right. If we're getting the MSA, both sides are definitely in the game. And trying right. to settle this case. So uh, if they are presented with an opportunity or really a potential roadblock, then they certainly play uh, the role of, of helper in this case. Sure. Going, to, going to the claimant saying, hey, like, you know, do you really need this surgery? Uh, going to the doctor and making sure, is this really necessary? Yep. All right. Um, Kim reminds us that MSA vendors typically have legal teams and they can help educate people who need information about whether CMS issues uh, whether the submission is, is necessary or non-necessary. I agree with that very much. Uh, and oftentimes we'll be in communication uh, with the vendor's legal team, right? We'll be saying, hey, let's, can we say this? Can we do that? Can we move this around? Sure, sure. Absolutely. I've, I've actually yeah. seen them at uh, file reviews uh, with employers, right? Just coming on really to uh, give two cents about what the future medical care is going to cost right. uh, when we're talking about settling particular claims that are being reviewed. So they yeah. definitely play a role. And it's not asked this. I think Kim wants to be on the web next year's webinar. That sounds like it. All right, we'll reach out to you, Kim. It also uh, came up this morning about getting paid fees on the MSA, because right. in the general liability world, it seems that claimants or plaintiffs' attorneys in that context 
will take a fee on the amount of medical that they claim they're recovering for their client. Workers' comp? Doesn't happen. No, Doesn't happen. Judges will reduce uh, fees at the settlement hearing if it appears that the fee is being taken as a percentage of the medical cost projection or the set aside. Yep. All right. Uh, I think that's pretty much our questions. We had a couple other more comment. Um, all right. Let's see. <laughs> Kim says, I'm tickled pink. You guys are talking about this subject at all. Well, Kim, we talk about it every year. Uh, and this year has been a quiet year, with the exception of medicinal marijuana and the new cards. It's really been, right. in our experience, well, this year has only been 22 days long. So, yes, that's true. It's been all very right. short. Okay. Uh, uh, that, thanks for your questions. If we didn't get to all of your questions, uh, please feel free to email us or call us. We're always around, available for this stuff. Uh, again, I recommend everyone uh, check out Christian's podcast. Uh, this month was right on point and really offered a lot of good insights into sort of second level stuff. It must be pretty good if you're promoting it after being a little hurt that you're not on. <laughs> well, I'm trying to angle <laughs> for next month. All right. Come, Come on, guys. Playing the cards now. Again. All, right. All right. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. Have a great week.